Father, I pray that once again the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are some things that we don't need the Bible to prove to us. And one of those is that eventually all of us are going to die. That's a sobering thought, and we have a tendency to live our lives uh, hoping and thinking that maybe we'll be the exception and that that won't happen to us. And so we, and, and rightly so, we fight aging and we fight all the, the ways in which it's, we uh, deal with getting older and getting closer to that. But the reality is, all of us die. Paul talks about that here, even in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, when he says, everyone through Adam dies. But in the midst of that, uh, talking about that, what Paul is really trying to get at is resurrection. And, and as Paul talks about resurrection, he is not minimizing the reality of death. He is not in any way saying, because we believe in the resurrection, death's not a big deal and it doesn't really matter to us. He's not saying that at all. He's simply saying that the reality is death comes to all, but then there is resurrection. And we can embrace that. And the problem for the Corinthians is that they are not truly embracing the bodily resurrection of themselves, others, and ultimately Christ. And this whole chapter, Paul is dealing with this idea of what they are missing. And he continues it in the section we're looking at today. When you come to verse 19, right before we started today, Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the body, then we should be pitied more than anybody else in the world. But then the very next verse 20 says, but Christ was indeed raised. And that's our hope. That's our life. That's, that's everything about who we are as Christians is that Christ was raised. And Christ was raised as the first fruits of resurrection. We talked a little bit about this last week that the idea of first fruits is that first harvest. It is usually the most plentiful of the harvest. And that's why God wanted the Israelites to bring the first fruits to him as a part of their sacrifice, as a part of their generosity. Because it was an act of saying, we're going to give to God the very best and the first that we have because it sets the tone for everything else. But the first fruits also tell you what's going to come. Because if you, have a, if you have a plant that grows uh, blueberries, and the first crop is blueberries, the second crop is not going to be raspberries. It's going to be blueberries. And so Paul is saying, if Christ is risen as the first fruits of all resurrection, then we know that everyone who comes after him is going to be resurrected like him. And he said, that's, that's the foundation of our faith. That's our hope. But that's not all he says, because then he goes on in the next few verses and talks about how the risen Christ is going to return. And he's going to establish his kingdom. He, when he returns, he is going to put all things ultimately, finally under his feet. And he's going to come and he's going to rule. And he's going to, he's going to make it clear to everyone, this is what the kingdom of God is about. 
All authority, all power is in the hands of Christ who rose from the dead and who lives eternally. And you get this little dialogue here in verses 24 to 28 where you sort of get a sense of a little bit of a a picture of the Trinity as he talks about the Father and the Son and their shared power. And And you get this sense of Paul just sneaking in a little bit of the Trinitarian nature of our belief system. It's almost what you get from Paul at the end of Philippians, or in the middle of Philippians chapter 2, after he describes Christ who, is, who, is, who has died. He now says, therefore, he is exalted above every name, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the one who returns, who rules, who reigns, the risen Christ. And Paul says, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of everyone, then you can't believe in the resurrection of Christ. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, then the ultimate eternal rule and reign of Christ is a lie. problem for them and for us is that the reign of Christ is future tense. You'll notice the verbs that he uses here are all future tense. He will come. Then, when, on that day, when he comes. There's this future tense nature to what, what Paul is talking about here of the return of Christ. And that's hard for us because it's hard to see it when you can't see it. It's hard to believe it when you can't see it. And I think that's one of the reasons they're wrestling with the bodily resurrection of Christ because they don't see it. And it makes a difference. And when you have people whispering in your ear saying, well, that may be fine about Jesus, but you do realize Caesar is really the Lord. Look around you, Christians. Who's got the power? I don't see Jesus anywhere. Looks to me like Caesar has the power. Looks to me like Rome has the power. Looks to me like the people with the wealth and the people who who run things, they've got the power. And Paul is reminding them that is simply not true. But it's hard to believe it when you don't see it. And I suspect that's one of the reasons why we struggle with the same kind of thing. It's hard for us not to place our, our, our belief and, and not to, to think that everything, things will change in this world and that, that you make a difference in this world through the power structures of this world because you can see those and you can't see the power of Jesus yet fully revealed. And so we find ourselves thinking that if we want to have change in this world, if we want to make a difference in this world, then you have to do it through Washington or Albany or Bangkok or Paris or Ottawa or or Freetown or wherever you're talking about. The places where people have power, that's where things make a difference. And Paul is saying, I know what it looks like, but that's not how the kingdom is. And the day is coming when you will see it. And he's not saying that now as we wait, Jesus is not Lord. God has no control over what goes on. He's just simply saying, all power is Christ. He has risen. He's conquered. It's done. 
We're just not experiencing yet this yet in all of its fullness. But it's coming. Can you believe it? And if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead, and you therefore don't believe that Christ was bodily raised from the dead, then all of that crumbles. And I have this image in my mind that at this point, Paul sort of stops and he's thinking to himself, I'm not sure I'm getting through to them. I'm not sure that that they're really grasping what I'm trying to say. And he's thinking to himself, how do I do that? How do I, how do I say this to them in a way that, that, they will, that it will make sense to them? How can I tap into what they know? How can I tap into what their experiences and help them to understand this? And I, I imagine Paul sitting there and thinking, and then maybe he's up and he's pacing and he's thinking. And then all of a sudden, the light goes on. And he writes... In verse 29 and 30, he says, Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And you and I read that and go, wait, what? You're talking about baptizing people for the dead? Paul, that's, that's your brilliant point? I think it is for, their, for them. Because what Paul is really saying there is, he's saying, look, if people are baptized for the dead, then that must mean that the dead are in some way still existing. Otherwise, why would you be baptized for them? If they're just sort of spirits flying around... What's the point of being baptized for them? The whole point of being baptized for them is because you believe they still have some kind of an existence and they will have a bodily existence where your baptism makes a difference. So really, by what you're doing, you're proving my point. And I suspect for them, they're saying, oh yeah, okay, great. I hadn't thought about that. You're right, that makes sense. For us, we're like, What? Why would you throw that in there? What, well, that doesn't help at all. Now, notice Paul's not condoning baptism for the dead. You look at the pronouns between verses 29 and 30. When he talks about baptizing for the dead, he's saying there are some people. There are those. It's third person. But the very next thing he talks about where he says we are sacrificing and we, are, we believe, it goes back to first person. I don't think that in any way Paul is condoning the practice of people being baptized for the dead. It's only mentioned relative, very few times, and, and typically it's mentioned by, in, in the context of groups that are not orthodox in their viewpoints. So Paul is not saying, look, this is a great thing you're doing. He's simply saying, this is something you're doing. Let me show you by what you're doing how it proves my point. And so Paul says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you credit for something that I don't agree with so that it proves my point that I'm trying to make to you. And I think Paul is, is simply saying, I want to major on the major things and not the minor things. It's like if you're trying to make a point to someone and you might say, well, you might reference a, 
a, a questionable television show or a questionable movie. And, and you might think, I'm not sure if I should mention this or not, but it really does make my point. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. But for us, it's a little bit confusing because we're saying, yeah, but it feels like you're condoning this practice. Even though I don't think Paul is. I think actually Paul's showing a high level of maturity here. He is willing to give them a minor point in order to prove his major point. Paul is willing to, to, to be potentially misunderstood about a, a, a peripheral thing in order to help to be fully understood about the central thing. And I suspect one of the reasons why that's difficult for us to grasp is because we have a tendency to want to win about everything. We have a tendency to say, I don't care how big a, argue, big a thing it is or small a thing it is, I want everybody to know that I'm right. And we push that continually. We do it with politics. We do it with things about, probably things about the pandemic. We do it with all kinds of things. We do it theologically, about theological things. We, there's something in us that says we have to make sure people know we're always right. And, of course, the consequence of that is to say we have to make sure that people know when they're wrong. And Paul's simply saying, I'm just trying to make a point that is central to the gospel. And sometimes you have to let some stuff go. Sometimes you have to say, that's not really the central main point. This is, and this is what we need to talk about. Because the problem is, if everything is a battle to win, we think that that raises everything to this high level. Actually, it brings everything down to the same level. And it doesn't maximize all of the peripheral things. It minimizes the main thing. And I think we need to, to step back and say, what am I really fighting about? What am I really giving my energy and my attention to? The main thing or peripheral things? Paul is willing to, to appear to lose in order to win. And I think there's something of the gospel in that. There's something of the gospel that says, I'm willing to lose. I'm willing to give up my rights in order to win for Christ. I mean, isn't that really what we find in the cross? I mean, the heart of the cross is Christ is willing to appear that he has lost in order to win. Anybody who looked at him hanging on the cross on that Friday would not have said, that person's winning. And yet, ultimately, he does. And I think that, that Paul is giving us, subtly, a formula about how we deal with the differences in our lives and our relationships and to keep the main thing the main thing. And it comes back to resurrection. If we don't really believe in the resurrection life, if we don't really believe that the kingdom of God is the eternal kingdom that will reign and rule, then you have to fight every battle because this is the only thing we have. But when you believe that, 
then you can take on the mindset of Christ that says you can deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And that's what Paul is saying as he moves on. He talks about sacrifice. He said, if there's no bodily resurrection, then why are we going through all this stuff? Why are we facing wild beasts? Why are we sacrificing? Why are we losing? Why are we, why are we giving up our rights? Why are we do, going through all of this if there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no bodily resurrection to come, if the eternal kingdom of Christ is not the kingdom then we ought to be fighting for everything we have now. Just eat, drink, be merry. Forget about sacrificing. And Paul says, but because I believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, I sacrifice every day. I give up things all the time. And that only makes sense. It, living sacrificially, living humbly, only makes sense if the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ is the ultimate kingdom. Otherwise, it's foolishness. There is, the resurrection presents us with what I would say a, a why in the road. You know, when you, you may step back, I think the Corinthians are saying, well, you know, some people believe in their bodily resurrection. Some people don't. Is it that big of a deal? It's just a little difference. And I think Paul is saying, well, it may start out as a little difference, but you don't have to travel down that road very far, and it's a big difference. In fact, I think Paul would say it's the ultimate difference. Because if we don't believe in the bodily resurrection for us, we don't believe in it for Christ. And that undermines everything. And so Paul gets to the end of this section and he says, stop sinning. Stop living as if the resurrection isn't true and doesn't matter. And there is a sense in which all of our sins ultimately are rooted in that mindset that we don't really believe in the eternal kingdom of Christ. We don't really believe that, that there is more to come, that we're going to be bodily raised and we're going to face that judgment day. If we don't believe that, then we live now any way we want to. And in essence, that's really the definition of sin. Living however we want to. Ignoring God. What does he mean when he says stop sinning? When you look back at the letter, and he mentions just some general things. It starts out by talking about how they're divided and saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow Paul. He's, you know... That's sinning because you don't really believe that the kingdom is about Christ. And he talks about sexual immorality. He talks about how they are, have a self-absorbed mindset about worship and the sacraments. And, and about spiritual gifts. And about love. The lack of love. It's interesting to me when you look at... at over this whole letter, Paul is in essence saying, all of these problems that you're dealing with come back to this. Somewhere along the line, you have lost your focus on the eternal risen Christ and his kingdom. And you may say you believe it, but are your actions proving otherwise? 
When I was in sixth grade, I, um, I was in honors music class. I, was, I went to a school that was K through eighth grade. And so there were sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And uh, I, I was invited to be a part of this class as a sixth grader. I was the only sixth grader in the class. So all the, everybody else in the class was older than me. And, you know, they'd been around longer. So, you know, as when you're the youngest, you, they make you do all the things they don't want to do. And, but I felt very privileged being in this class. And I, whether you, you know, you might not believe this, but when I was growing up, I, I actually was a good boy. You know, I mean, I was good. You know, ask my mother. She'll tell you I was good. Don't ask my sisters, but ask me, you can ask my mother. You know, I mean, especially at school. You know, I didn't, get in, I didn't get in much trouble at school. Sometimes I talked too much. But, you know, I never went to the principal's office. I never had to stay after for detention. You know, I, I basically was a good kid. I think if everybody looked at me, they would say, yeah, he's a, he's a good kid. You know, you, you just don't, I didn't get in trouble. You know, I kept my head down, you know, and did what I was supposed to do. So I'm sitting in, a, so I'm in this music class, and we're all kind of sitting in two circles. And it's funny the things you remember. I remember the teacher's name was Mrs. Oberhausen. Isn't it weird how you remember things like that? So, because that was more than 10 years ago that I was in sixth grade. And, <laughs> and so we're sitting in these two little semicircles, and she says to the kid next to me, hey, would you go grab the maracas? Again, I remember that. She wanted him to grab the maracas. So he gets up, he walks over, he grabs them, and he comes back. And I don't know why. I don't know what came over me. I have no idea to this day why I did this. But when he turned to sit down in his chair, I pulled his chair off from under him. Bam, on the ground. And there was just dead silence in the room. I mean, he's looking up at me like, what just happened? All the other kids in the class were like, oh boy. And Mrs. Oberhausen, who was standing at the piano, just stared at me. I'm the good boy, right? She just stared at me. I've never seen anybody's eyes so big in my life. Her mouth just wide open just staring at me. You know, it probably was five seconds, but it felt like two hours. And she just looked at me. Everybody wanted to laugh, but of course you couldn't in that moment. And she said to me, Wesley, I wish I was in trouble when anybody called me Wesley. Wesley, I can't believe you just did that. Shame on you. And then my former friend stood up and whacked me on the head with the maracas. And then everybody kind of laughed for a second. And, of course, the worst part of the whole thing was that my sister, my older sister was in the class. So, you know, when I got home and she ratted me out, and then I got in trouble at home too. I still, I can never forget her looking at me, that look of shock on her face saying, shame on you. And that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. Shame on you. You've come so far, and now you're giving up what is essential to you. But here's the real essence of the shame. It's not just their lives. It's the lives they are impacting. You get to the end of this, and he says, there are those who are ignorant of Christ. And there's discussion about whether he's talking about the Corinthians themselves or other people. And he could go both ways, but I think he's talking about other people. The word ignorance or not knowing is, is the word agnostio, from which we get the word agnostic, people who don't believe. 
And Paul is saying, it's bad enough that you guys are missing it. It's bad enough that of what's happening to you. But the worst thing is what your lack of faith is doing to others. What the decisions you're making about your life are doing to other people. Because it's presenting a false image of God to them. They think God doesn't have the power over death. They think that God's kingdom is not the ultimate kingdom. They think that that what matters is how you live now with no regard for anything to come. And you're leading them astray. And from the very beginning when God calls out people to be his people, he says to them, beginning with Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that for the purpose of blessing all the nations. And Jesus says to his disciples, now you're my disciples, go and make other disciples. That's always been the plan of God, that his people are an influence on others. And here's the, here's the issue. If we're followers of Jesus, we make any claims to follow Jesus, we're going to influence other people. The question is, are we going to influence them positively or negatively? Toward Christ or away from Christ? Are we going to be witnesses that bring glory to God or shame on us? And if we deny the resurrection, then what we're really doing is denying the power of the crucifixion. And we deny the power of the crucifixion, you, you undermine all the teachings of Jesus. And when you undermine the teachings of Jesus, you undermine the incarnation And when you undermine the incarnation of Christ coming in human flesh, then you completely disintegrate the nature and the essence of God. Why would anyone believe if we live like we don't believe? And no wonder Paul says to them, shame on you. Shame on you. A couple of years ago, Cindy and I were up at a car dealership in Rochester getting our vehicle serviced. And we had been, um, you know, it's, you get everything designed and sit there. And we went in. Um, these are the days where you could go into places and sit there and, you know, and not worry about it. But uh, we went into the dealership and, and we sat down in this little canteen area at tables. And you always bring things to do while you're waiting. And so I, I had brought with me. Uh, the works of Josephus. I was wanting to read this book, and it's, I, got, I didn't realize what I was getting into until I got into it. It's a really thick book, 900 and some pages of tiny, tiny print. I've always wanted to read it, so I thought, I'm going to start. So I'm, I have this book there, and I'm reading it, and this other guy comes in, a uh, retired gentleman, and he goes to the vending machine and buys something, comes out, stops, and looks, and he says, wow, that's a pretty thick book. I said, yeah. He says, is that a religious book? Well, I don't know why he would think that was a religious book, but I said, well, sort of. It's a history of, of the Jews, and it's a history of, of God's people and things. And He says, um, so you guys religious? I said, yeah. I said, in fact, you know, we're both pastors. And he said, well, let me tell you a story. He said, um, when I was young, 18, 19 years old, I was drafted to the Vietnam War. It scared me to death. I didn't want to go fight. You know, I, I, I didn't want to do this. And I was scared. I, I, was, I was worried. 
And he said, so right before I shipped out, I went to, went to my pastor. And I talked to him about my fears and my concerns. And I poured out my heart to him. I said, I need help. And he said, my pastor looked at me and said, you know, you really shouldn't be fighting this war. This war is wrong. It, it shouldn't be fight, fought. It, you shouldn't be doing this. And he, and he had this whole conversation, one-sided conversation, about how bad the war was. All the while, completely ignoring this young man's feelings and his struggle. And he said to us, you know, when, when that conversation was done, I walked out and I thought to myself, I'm not sure I want to have anything to do with this church stuff anymore. And he said, that was, you know, what, 50 years ago or whatever. And he said, I made it through the war and it was tough, but I made it. And he said, but you know, he said, I, I've never really gone back to God. He said, I just, I just couldn't recover from that moment. You know, I'm thinking, wow, this guy is really pouring out his heart to us in, in this you know, place you wouldn't expect it. And we apologized to him for that behavior and, you know, and tried, to, tried to talk to him a little bit about what we thought and, and things. And, and you could just see that, you know, he was thinking about it, but after 50 years, it's, it's hard to change your mind. I pray for him many, many times. And I was just reminded again that how we live matters. Not just about us, but about others. And it comes back to the resurrection. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts verse 32 in the message. Resurrection, resurrection, always resurrection that undergirds what I do and say the way I live. So today we want to declare Christ is risen. Let's live so that people believe we believe it. Father, we thank you that Christ is risen. May we truly live that others will see and believe. 